and thank you for tuning into my podcast. My name is Brandy Runner, and I'm a certified life coach, a proud cancer warrior and survivor. This podcast is devoted to cancer survivors, warriors, and their amazing caregivers. I'm excited to bring to you their stories of diagnosis, treatment, survival, and hope beyond cancer. Some of my favorite quotes are, cancer opens many doors. One of the most important is your heart, Greg Anderson. You can be a victim of cancer or a survivor of cancer. It's a mindset, Dave Peltzer. Once again, I want to personally thank you for listening. And if you'd like to be a part of this, please contact me through my website at bebeyondlimits.com. And now for our guest. Thank you so much for calling in, Deanna. Can you please briefly describe for my listening audience who you are, what type of cancer that you had, and how it affected your life? My name is Deanna Brown, and I was 36 years old when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I currently work as a social worker. I have a master's in public administration with healthcare, so gearing towards, you know, one thing, having cancer, I've always been a person to want to help. Obviously, being a social worker for over 25 years has the passion to help others. So really, when I was going through treatment, has inspired me to want to take the next step forward to work in a hospital or work with cancer patients to try to have a better experience. So like if you go to the hospital, nurses or staff of the hospitals are not looking at you like you have the plague and you're treated like anybody else that has to come into the hospital. That is wonderful. We had some wonderful advocates at the hospitals that I worked at that helped us a lot. And those are great people to have. Shoot. You must not have gone to Kern County as a hospital chair because none of them are advocates. Uh. That is very frustrating. <laughs> I know that a lot of very hospitals very throughout the nations do not have advocates. Some of them do, and the ones that I was involved with have been wonderful. I have heard many stories where people did not have advocates assigned to them, and they did not get the same level of treatment and care that I did. Yeah, you got lucky. Yes. 
I did. Can you please tell us a little bit about the day that you were diagnosed? Yes. I had gone to my surgeon's office to get the test results from a needle biopsy of my lymph nodes. And, you know, I walked in and I went all by myself. I have no family bigger, so I went into the office by myself. And my appointment was at 3.30. And he called back until roughly 4, 4, 4.15. And I had knew, I had known in my head, in the heart of heart, that something was wrong because his office was pretty much dead. No no other patients, except there was one patient that he was, you know, talking to. So when he came into the room and I just told him, I said, you know what? Don't sugarcoat anything. Tell me what it is. I don't want to be sugarcoated. I can handle whatever you tell me. So when he told me, I sat there and I said, okay, you know, you're the boss. You tell me what's next. And at that moment, he told me, he said, before you say anything or you do anything, I'm going to sit right here with you. If you want me to hold your hand, you want me to hug you, you want to cry on my shoulder, I'm here for you. And I told him, I said, you know what, I appreciate that, but you know what, we can sit here. And we sat there for roughly five, pretty much in silence. And I told him, I said, you know, there's nothing else at this moment that you can do for me except to tell me what my next step is. Because I wasn't shocked, but I also was, didn't know that I was the fear of unknown of what was going to happen next. Because, I mean, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the word cancer, and you hear things of most people that are passing away from cancer. At that time, I had only had, I believe, one person that I know of in my family that had cancer. And it was my grandma, and she was taken five months after she was diagnosed. When I heard the diagnosis... I was okay with it, and I was okay with whatever the next step was. If they could tell me I had one month to live, I would have took it and lived my life like it was my last day. Right. So, honestly, on the diagnosis day, was I numb? Absolutely. But I couldn't allow my life to stop right then and there. I told him, I said, you know what, we're going to take this and hit the ground running. You tell me whatever I need to do, and I will do it. Sounds like you were a little prepared for the diagnosis, and that's kind of a good place to be. Looking back on that, is there anything that you wish that someone would have told you prior to your diagnosis? No, because honestly, I didn't know. I'm a stubborn person, and about, I don't know, six months roughly, I had like a swollen lymph node, but I honestly thought it was with my tonsils. So at the time, I still had my tonsils, and I'd get strep throat all the time. So, you know, I'd go to work every day, and I would, you know, I would talk to one of the nurses at work, and she'd say, you know, that's not going away, Deanna, you know, that's not going away. Oh, it's fine, it's fine. And she'd threaten to call my mom and say, hey, you know, you need to talk to Deanna to get her to go to the doctor. She's not going to the doctor. But honestly, I mean, I would have never thought, oh, it's a lymph node. I would have never put the connection and two and two together that, oh, full and lymph node automatically means I'm going to have Hodgkin's lymphoma or some sort of cancer. I would have never thought of that. So there's no way really anybody could have prepared for anything because I did everything planned. The day that I was leaving my office, the nurse at my job actually said she was going to contact my doctor herself, which is ironic. As I was walking to my car, my doctor's office called me to say, hey, we need you to come in for something else. And I said, well, that's great that you called because I have a problem. 
so when I went in, they got me in the very next day. And when I went in, right away, the doctor was like, oh, you know what? You needed a, I think I did a CAT scan. And so then when I came back and she said, yep, yeah, sure enough, CAT scan shows something that we're going to schedule you for the needle biopsy. And I said, all right, that's wonderful. Like, you know, whatever you guys tell me to do, you're the boss, not me. I'm not, you know, that medical profession. So, honestly, there was nothing I don't think anybody could have told me because how would I have known? Right. Absolutely. Mine so, came as a shock as well. I was right there with you. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I could have, the only other things I think of after I got diagnosed and when I saw, after I did my very first PET scan and I realized where the radioactive cells lit up, then I started thinking, oh my goodness, for six to eight months, I was having these symptoms. My throat started burning, where at times I would literally walk into my kitchen and want to grab a knife and cut my throat out because it burnt so bad. I've never had heartburn. People say, we have heartburn. So I buy heartburn medication. It didn't go away. It would burn and burn and burn. Itching on different parts of my body. Itch so bad. Again, I just wanted to take a knife or scissors and cut off different body parts because the itching wasn't such an hour. But that was the cancer burning inside of my body and making me itch. Wow. Incredible. Can you please tell us a little bit about the types of therapies that you received? Types of therapies that I received. When I was diagnosed, my doctor, funny story, was my surgeon asked me if I had an oncologist that I would want to be referred to. Me joking with the doctor because I realized he was a jokester. I said, yes, sir. Hold on. I pulled out my cell phone and I went through my contacts and I said, hey, let's call him. And he's like, that's not an oncologist. I said, you're absolutely right. I don't know any oncologist. So he picked one and he sent me to it and it ended up to be a quack. But long story short, he does therapies. So I did my first radiation. I did eight solid weeks, five days a week of radiation. After radiation, I did my very first PET scan three months later because you have to let the radioactive dye come out of your system. So when I did my PET scan, when the doctor told me that, my radiation oncologist told me that now I have to do aggressive chemo because I was wrongfully diagnosed with the first oncologist that neither only radiation, I should have been doing chemo all along, but I had never had a PET scan, but I had cancer in 14 parts of my body. My radiation oncologist told me, Deanna, you have less than three months to live if we do not treat you aggressively. So I did chemo four times a month for six solid years. I have had nine different surgeries. Oh my goodness. So what I'm taking from that is to definitely make sure that you are absolutely comfortable with the decision that your oncologist is making in your care. Well, I guess at that time, I could have got on the internet or I could have, I don't know who else I could even talk to, but I mean, not many people know what a PET scan is. To me, the first time I heard that, I really thought they were talking about something an animal would do. Because I'm thinking, I'm not a dog, I'm not a cat, I'm not a pet. What does pet stand? They didn't explain what a pet stood for. Right. So, to be honest with you, I didn't know that you should always have a pet scan done before you do any kind of, so they can have a clear and concise treatment plan for you. Yes. 
This podcast is specific to people, either caregivers or cancer patients, and a lot of people might be listening to this at the very beginning of their journey. They've just had their diagnosis. Can you explain to us a little bit from your knowledge what a PET scan is, how it's performed, and what results they can potentially get from that? Yes. A PET scan is a, it's a scan, so it's position run, emission, tomographically scan. So you basically lay in what is like a MRI machine, and you're laying in there, and it takes scans of your body, and you're in there, each section of the body is a five-minute procedure, and you cannot move around, you can't do anything, you have to just completely lay there. First of all, before you even go into the machine, they shoot a radioactive dye into your body. And you let that manifest for about 45 minutes to an hour. Then you go into the machine. And so, like I said, each section that they scan, is, which is your whole body, but it's five minutes. So your head is five minutes, then it goes to your upper chest, then it goes to your stomach, and then it goes to your pelvic area. Then it goes to your legs, basically, and each one of them is about a five-minute process. You're in there for about 30 minutes, laying completely still. You can't move your arms. Your arms are above your head. It's very, very tight because it's an MRI machine, basically. So some facilities, when you do the PET scan, they also make you drink some sort of like a contrast kind of like thing, but I did find out that really doesn't make a difference. I did it the very first time. And it was the most gross, disgusting thing I've ever tasted. I don't like anything banana-flavored drinks. And it was very, very warm. They cannot let you have it cold. Come to find out that not a lot of places make you. That doesn't really have that big of an effect on it if you drink or don't drink that. So then what happens is the skin massifies all the active cancer cells in your body. So then when you see your, it almost looks like a, a film like from an x-ray or something, so it's a film, and you see your body, and you can see if you have cancer in certain areas, they they light up, and they're white, basically. Yes, I remember those nasty banana shakes. I had three of those. That's the most disgusting thing I ever think I drank. I drank it in, like, literally probably point two seconds. I downed it as fast as I could because I wanted to throw up. I gagged. It took me about 10 minutes to get that thing down because I could not handle it. We tried a straw. We tried chugging. It was horrible. (laughs) Sorry to all you newbies, but this is a fact and a reality of some of the things that you might face. And if you have to go in for a PET scan, even a CT with contrast, sometimes you will drink these banana shakes and they're nasty. Yes. (laughs) Can you describe, does the injection of the dye feel like anything? Do you taste anything? So, you know what? They say that you can feel it burning. Honestly, I've never, even like on a contrast for like a CAT scan or anything, I've never felt anything. So honestly, I can't answer that. They say it should feel like you're burning or like you have to actually urinate. But I didn't feel a thing. Like I said, even if I did a regular CAT scan and they do contrast. I don't feel that at all. You are so lucky. I feel whenever I've had a CT with contrast, I definitely felt warm throughout my whole body. And not only did I feel like I had to urinate, I felt like I did. Never felt that. 
<laughs> it's horrible. I remember the first time I had a CT with contrast, and I literally was on the table crying that I just peed myself. <laughs> and I had this lovely yeah. metallic taste in my mouth that wouldn't go away for hours. I've heard that, but I've never... But again, I'm like one that does not ever feel pain. I've never felt pain. I've never taken a pain pill a day in my life except Tylenol for a headache. And I've had some major, major surgeries. And I've never taken a pain pill or anything. Wow, that is amazing. That leads me into the next great question. As a cancer patient, what did you do to take care of yourself when you were going through radiation and chemo? Were you involved in therapy? Were you going to church? Were you meeting with friends, talking with somebody? Anything to help keep your morale and your yourself together? I mean, the thing that I guess would be, yes, during radiation, I worked during radiation. I worked the whole eight weeks that I was going through radiation. So that helped. I also met friends for lunch, dinner, different things like that. I still went to church. But I also started writing a book about my cancer journey. That's fantastic. Have you completed it or is it still in the journey state? No, it's still in the, still be completed to up to this part, but I don't know if I want to complete it yet or if I want to look into getting it through maybe a publisher or have somebody looking at it and then maybe start just this book and then go, you know, have it continued. It's still kind of in the works at this moment. That's fantastic. Now let's deviate a little bit from that. Can you please describe for us since your diagnosis and during all of your chemo and radiation and surgeries, can you describe your best day? My best day? Honestly, even though some days were the worst, I would say every day was the best day because I was beating what I was battling. Even though every treatment that I did, I ended up in the hospital for anywhere from three days to a week after every single treatment oh my goodness well like i own stock in one certain hospital in bakersfield (laughs) i think we all felt like that at some point yes well that sounds like you had a beautiful attitude towards your treatment and your we were given three months to live and it's been years so that's fantastic however we all go through really bad days can you describe your worst day for us I sure can. So it was my second chemo treatment. So I did it. You know, I felt great. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. Happened to have my grandma. My grandma came up from my first two chemo sessions with me. So I had my grandma with me. So after we left chemo, it was about maybe five hours, four hours maybe somewhere around there. So we decide, okay, you know what, we're going to go grab some lunch. So I drove and went to a restaurant and got to the restaurant and within maybe five minutes of sitting there, I started feeling dizzy. I felt like I was drunk. I told my grandma that I could not wait for my salad. And she said, are you sure? And I said, okay, well, I can, I'll try. I'll try, I said, but I'm starting to feel really different. We get our salads before our food came, and I took two bites of my salad, and I told my grandma, I said, 
If we do not leave right this second, I will not be able to drive home. I don't know what is going on with me. So, of course, we leave. I drive home. I get into my house, and I fall on my floor. And I, it took me a couple minutes to get up, and my grandma said, I'm going to call the doctor and ask what's going on. I said, no, I just please just let me go to sleep. All I want to do is sleep. I went to the couch, and I took a nap. And I woke up, and I was sweating from head to toe. Just, I felt like I probably sat in a sauna for 10 minutes. I was so drenched. And I said, I have to use the restroom. So I get up, and again, I could not walk. So I crawled. Thankfully, I had a half a bath not too far from my living room. I crawled to my bathroom. And as soon as I barely opened my bathroom door, I just vomited profusely all over. And I said, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on with me. My grandma's next to me saying, please, Dana, let me call the doctor, please, or call the ambulance. And I said, no, I'll be fine. Again, very, very stubborn. <laughs> and I mean, at this point, I'm shaking uncontrollably. Probably like if it was a beach well shaking out of water. And my grandma, again, please let me call the ambulance. And I said, no. So we finally called the on-call at the cancer center that I went to. They immediately told me to go to the ER. So I get a friend of mine to drive because my grandma doesn't really know Bakersfield that well. And I didn't want her driving. We go, and instead of going to the ER, and again, instead of going via ambulance, which I should have, Instead of going ER, I go to an urgent care. I crawled on the ground from a car to urgent care. They did not even take me because I could not walk. So we finally, I said, okay, fine. I guess I have to go to the hospital. So after sitting in the ER in the waiting room, they finally took me back. And, you know, I was shaking, shaking, throwing up. Just, I mean, I don't know how many bags and bags of the throw-up bags I went through. Throwing up, throwing up. And when they finally, the reason they took me back so quick was I had a temperature of 110.9. Oh, my gosh. I ended up in ICU for 11 days. And they found out that I was allergic to the chemo, and the nurses pushed the chemo too fast through me. Wow. What an incredible story that you survived at that temperature. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't even imagine I was shaking so bad I even shook myself off of the bed in the ER into an ice bath you are a testament for things that this body can survive yes well considering that we had a horror story from you are there any funny memories Mm, I don't I don't really think I can think of one wow We had some great ones, and maybe this will spark a memory in you of people in the chemo infusion center that would come in dressed in costumes, or uh, one lady that I went to chemo with, she came in an evening gown, every treatment, in a (laughs) full-on evening gown. That's funny. I had some characters, that's for sure. Who did you lean on the most for support? Was that your grandma? I think, yes, my grandma, and then I also think when I decided to let people know what I was going through via post, made a post on Facebook, I then started allowing, you know, friends and people that I've known and grown up with and 
you know, I allow them to be my support group. Facebook and Instagram now are definitely wonderful places to find support. You'll find that a lot of people have been touched by cancer, more people than you would have ever thought before. Because like you, a lot of people don't talk about it in the beginning. I didn't tell anyone till many years later. I didn't want anyone to know my journey. So reaching out is definitely an important part of cancer recovery. How did cancer change your life? I guess if I could say that it changed it just by making me, I always felt I was very humble, but I feel like even became more humble. And I just let things just now be, so to speak, versus being uptight about stuff because you never know when it's going to be your last day. You never know what's going to happen. You never know, especially going through cancer and constantly have to and things to make sure we, I'm not in full remission, but I'm in enough remission where we're just saying, okay, you know what, yes, they're still active cells, but we're just, they're not massifying, so I choose not to do anything else right now. So, to me, it's always a change because, again, I can go in and do a blood test, or I can go in and, you know, do a PET scan and laying in that machine and saying, okay, it could be three days, it could be a week before I see my doctor. What is going to come out on this scan? You know, what am I going to be told when I walk into the doctor's office to get the results? Your life has changed because you're constantly thinking, okay, or any other, any symptoms. Sometimes if I itch too much, it's like, okay, did I get a rash? Did I get a bite? Is that something going on in my body? Is that trying to tell me something? I gained weight because I took a steroid for three weeks, and I ballooned up in those three weeks, and so obviously as you get older, and especially they say steroids, weight is hard to lose anyway, it does change your life. Absolutely. Prednisone is definitely prevalent in post-radiation and chemotherapy with a lot of patients, and that is something that we struggle with, is the constant fluctuations in our weight. A lot of people think that cancer patients are super thin, and that is not true. (laughs) I did not lose a bunch of weight. I actually gained 35 pounds during my six-year journey, and it's, it's not what people think. And that's what's amazing is hearing everybody's story. Everybody's journey is slightly different and yet so similar. And I thank you so much for sharing that part of your journey that's really important for people to know that this is something that we face on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis is the fluctuations in our body, the things that can change. I know that you are in semi-remission, that they haven't found anything. They don't know what's going on at this exact moment. But can you describe for us your last time that you went for chemo, radiation, surgery, whatever your last therapy was, and what your feelings and emotions were tied to that? Well, if we start off with the radiation, when I was done with radiation, I had a feeling that radiation was not going to be it. I don't know why or what, but I just had a feeling that I was not done. Yes, I was done with radiation, but I knew there was something else to come, which obviously was the chemo. And on my last chemo, I was excited because, A, I was done for at least for the time being, but I also knew I wasn't going to the hospital any longer, you know, because I had 
seven different chemos that I get, and I was allergic to five out of the seven. Oh, my goodness. So every time I did chemo, my heart rate sometimes would get up into the 200s because, you know, fighting of the, what my body was rejecting. And so I knew, you know, this was now my last step at that moment of going to the hospital. I can finally say... I'm done. I'm not going to any more hospitals. I've had a couple of surgeries since, but you know what? They've all been great and hospital stays. Again, like I said, there are some people are okay with cancer patients. Some don't want to be around you. Some just put you on back burner. That is very interesting point. When you're a cancer patient and you're in and out of hospitals, specifically if you have one that you go to all the time. You have one that sees you and you get to know the nurses and the doctors on staff and the radiologists and the phlebotomists. They all know who you are. There are some that you develop relationships with and then there's others that you hope and pray that you do not end up on their shift. Correct, yes. Those are some of the things that, you know, cancer patients and even their caregivers have to look forward to and prepare themselves for is nursing profession is they're beautiful, wonderful people, but not all of them are meant to deal with oncology patients. Not all of them are meant to be with pregnant women. Not all of them are made to be with men, but they serve their purpose. But you'll find those wonderful nurses and definitely make sure you glom onto those. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Were there any books that you read that you would recommend for any cancer survivors? Honestly, I did not read anything to kind of gear me one way or the other. So I didn't I didn't read anything that they gave you or, you know, stuff on like Hodgkin's lymphoma or just because, like, again, I never really researched the internet either because what they say could not happen may not happen to you, but they say could happen to you, you know, so I just was like, I always wanted it just to be whatever it is, it is. What did you do with your time during chemo? Uh, Well, like I said, I was writing my book, and a lot of times I just sat there and reflected on my life, and okay, what is it that God is wanting me to do? I guess I can say I reread the Bible twice while I was going for treatment, and, you know, really reflected on things that were in the Bible, and just on, like, what would happen if I was to, God forbid, pass away. That's definitely a book you could recommend, then. (laughs) Yeah, of course, yeah. Fantastic. My usual last question is, what have you done since cancer? But I think we kind of bounced on that in the very beginning. What are some of the things that now that you're in this place, that you would like to accomplish in your life? I think my biggest thing I'd like to accomplish is obviously switching careers and going into a hospital. Just even if it's not to do something with um, cancer patients, but just if I can go in and make a difference. You know, I don't know if it's being like a CFO or, you know, running a department. But I mean, ultimately, try to get into a hospital and then try to figure out a way to bring in, like, patient advocate for cancers, for cancer patients, to be an advocate, to help them, to let them know that they're not alone. And to, again, I, since I did spend a lot of time in the hospital, you know, what it really bothers me is the nurses, you know, unfortunately, they work 
two jobs. So they might work at one hospital during the day and get off and run over and work this hospital this night because back to the country. So they're constantly having to work, you know, that overwork. So it's hard, especially when you're a cancer patient. And I mean, not me, because I didn't really, like I said, I never felt pain, so I never really needed them. But I did, there were a few times that I did need them. And it would take hours upon hours before a nurse would come to my room. Yes. Patient advocates are definitely important for specifically those types of events. And I know that a lot of hospitals are understaffed and they don't have enough nurses to care for those patients that are in their wards. But it needs to Mm -hmm. be, they need some sort of knowledge that this is happening. And be your own best advocate. Make sure that you're sticking up for yourself. Make sure that you're writing thank you letters for the nurses who do a great job. Make sure you're letting people know the nurses that didn't quite live up to your needs. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are really you important. You have to because I hate to say it, but some, some nurses that I've dealt with say, oh, you're a cancer patient? Like, we're not going to give it to you. You're not going to get it. I remember when I lost my hair, I remember getting gas in my car. And one of the, there was a little girl next, I don't know, she's probably nine to, maybe nine to 11 years old. And, you know, then she's old enough to know that maybe has never dealt with it. But she whispered to her mom, well, I can hear her. And, you know, mom, why would a girl cut her hair? That's ridiculous to be bald. You know, I don't have leprosy. I'm not going to come after you. I'm not going to, you're not going to get a bald head or whatever because I'm bald. People got to remember that, you know, sensitivity. You know, we don't want to, you know, be going through what we're going through and you lose your hair. I mean, that's one sacred thing I think to most women is your hair. And you don't know if it's going to come back. Right. You know, you don't know how people are going to judge you or look at you or, again, think you have leprosy. And then when you go into the hospital and it's like, oh, you have cancer? Yeah. Oh. Is that contagious? No, it's not contagious. But they stand 800 feet back from you and hand you something. And again, it's like, it's not contagious. Right. That's something that no one's ever brought up before. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. Definitely surround yourself with people that are positive and loving and give you the hugs when you need them and give you the props up when you need them. Because in society... There are the stigmas, there are the misunderstandings, and you'll battle those moments. So it's very wonderful that you shared that memory, because people may be going through that now or sometime in the future, so they can prepare themselves for, one, how their reactions will be, and two, how the reactions of people around them will be. I want to end this podcast with something, and because you and I are friends outside of this podcast, I can bring it up. You recently did something extreme and exciting that is totally life-giving. Can you please tell my audience about that experience and what led you up to it? So you are talking about the one and lovely skydiving trip. Yes. So that was not my first time skydiving. I am an adrenaline drunk, and I love it. You know, I'm a daredevil, and I like to do things like that. Should I have probably done it as a cancer patient? Probably not. But because they do say that you shouldn't, oh, I don't know, at least maybe not your doctor, but my doctor, you know, once you have cancer and once you've had different surgeries and I've had blood clots and different things, they say you should not even do roller coasters. 
should I have probably done it? I have been that? Probably not. But my other half has never been skydiving, and his birthday is from Monday, June 29th, and we decided, I decided I wanted to finally let him go skydiving. So we made a trip down south to Oceanside and had a fun weekend and, you know, made memories and allowed him to skydive in. That is awesome. It was just fun. Can you describe skydiving for us? Something I've always wanted to do as a cancer survivor, I have decided that I'm going to make every day and every moment of my life precious. It's going to live it like your last life, every last day. Absolutely. So So, tell us what it feels like. It's a a little nerve-wracking when you're getting suited up, and then you have to take that, I don't know, it could be a 45-step walk to the plane. And then you're just like, oh, my God, this is so surreal. We are now going to get into this plane. They are going to load you in. So it's you, then your instructor that is attached. Once you get up into the air in the plane, your instructor starts attaching all the equipment to you. So you are literally attached attached to the instructor. But, again, you know, there's, say, anywhere from 10 to 14 people in a plane. And so as you get up into the air, they actually open up the rollaway door for the plane. And you cruise around a little bit as you're climbing altitude. And you're getting the fresh air because you're packed in like sardines. You've got your instructor and then you and then another person and their instructor and another person. And then even people are sitting on the floor of the plane. It's not a big plane like you would think you would jump on and go to Hawaii on or something, you know. You know, your instructor's talking to you, but it's very loud because you're up out many thousands of feet here in the air and then if they have the door open so you can get fresh air that wind is just blowing on you and you're sitting there the whole time thinking at any moment your instructor is just going to tell you to go you don't have two seconds to think about it they tell you that they want you to sit on the floor of the plane and tuck your feet under the plane and then they will push you you know when they say go they can go they you, they scoop you down as quick as they can off of these little, and they're not even, again, they're not even white. There's like if you were sitting in a plane going to Hawaii. They are like a, a bench. <laughs> so they kind of just nudge you off of it onto the floor, and when they say go, they just automatically push you. And you just think, holy smoke, what just hit me? Because you lose your breath for that first couple seconds. Because not only are you free-falling, they're doing, if you want them to do, they will do jumps, they will do flips, they will do whatever they want to do. Or if you tell them, hey, you know what, I get sick, please don't do flips, they'll just kind of guide and do some things. So it's kind of, you're seeing the, the view from above as fast as you can see them. Down. You land, it's just kind of like, that was awesome, let's do it again, or, you know, I didn't like that, or... You kind of, when you get on the ground, you kind of catch your balance, too, because here you've just been free-falling, and I don't know if you get motion sickness, especially after treatment. Now, I kind of get motion sickness, and I really kind of was a little bit sick, but I told him, and he's like, okay, we won't do any flips, we won't. We kind of just took it, but then after a couple seconds, it was like, oh, my God, maybe this is what the doctor says. You feel so different, and not do roller coasters, can't do roller coasters anymore. I instantly get sick. Oh. I don't know if I could handle but, not doing roller coasters. Oh, see, and I was—I used to be that adrenaline junkie that I can roller coaster all day, every day. And now it just 
and then it, it hits my head, hits the side of the you know the roller coaster. I'm done because I instantly get a headache. Yes, I can see that. I went to Magic Mountain four years ago. It was the first time I had been back in in many years, and. I did the revolution, which they now do virtual reality and the revolution. I got so sick. I felt like I was going through chemo all over again. I thought I was going to lose it. I went to Red Mountain for the first time and I don't even know, probably 10, 12 years maybe. I went last October. My brother and my niece and nephew came out here for Arizona for a week. And we all decided to go to Magic Mountain. I hit the very first ride we hit was Viper. And after that, I was back to the day. I walked because I couldn't do it to hit the, hit the, you know, the siding so much. I had headaches. I said, I can't do this. You oh. know, they all, my other half and my niece and nephew, my brother, they rode at rides all day. I couldn't. I just walked in that because I lost it. You know, I lost that touch of roller coaster. Interesting. So that's definitely something that people should be aware of. If you're an adrenaline junkie, yeah. the things that you can and cannot do may change. Yes. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I have enjoyed this so much. And, you know, your story of Hodgkin's lymphoma is something that can definitely help somebody else down their journey. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience? I mean, again, it could be, you know, when you start treatment, your body can react to, you can become allergic to different foods. You can become allergic to things that you've never thought you were allergic to before. Like, for instance, I now cannot be around hot water. I instantly break out in rash and hives. So I have, a, like, a tolerance now to hot water. That is something I have not heard in my nine years of dealing with cancer patients. That is the first time I've heard that one. Interesting. Yes, so I take cold, cold showers all the time. I don't even, I can't even do lukewarm because I break out. Your skin becomes so sensitive. You know, I have to use a certain type of, I used to always use Tide's laundry soap. Now I use Tide, but I have to use um, bone free or I will break out and hide. I definitely was using Dreft, which is uh, laundry soap when I was going through chemo and radiation. My skin was definitely very sensitive. It is no longer sensitive, but it was for very, probably seven or eight years. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's mine so, so sensitive. Absolutely. The last question I have for you really quickly is, are there any Facebook or Instagram pages that you follow that might help a cancer patient or a caregiver in their journey? I think I just follow Hodgkin's lymphoma because that's what I had. And then I follow, um, I think I might still follow like American Cancer Center, but other than that, no, I don't really follow anything. No problem. It's just a question I thought of recently and thought I would ask. I, once again, thank you so much for your time. I totally appreciate no, you coming on. <laughs> I am so looking forward to sharing your story with with my audience. And I totally appreciate it. Thank you so much. I have absolutely adored hearing your story. And I look forward to watching your adventures. <laughs> thank you so much. I want to thank you all for tuning in to the latest episode of Be Beyond Limits podcast. 
I am so thankful that you have chosen to spend your time sharing in these stories of our wonderful cancer survivors and their beautiful caregivers. I am so blessed to be able to bring these stories to you. If you know anybody that would like to be involved in this podcast, please have them go to my website at bebeyondlimits.com. That's B-E-B-E-Y-O-N-D-L-I-M-I-T-S.com. My name is Brandy Runner, and I am a certified life coach and now professional podcaster, sharing many stories with you. And I am so grateful to have been given this opportunity, and I look forward to getting to know each and every one of you.